This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Gordon Ray, uh, the author of many books about the American Civil War. He has a new one out entitled Stephen A. Swales, Black Freedom Fighter in the Civil War and Reconstruction. Gordon, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about you first. Uh, how did you get from Arlington, Virginia, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to Charleston, South Carolina? Well, it's been a long route. <laughs> I was, was born up in Arlington, Virginia. My dad worked for Lend Lease during World War II, and uh, we were up there. But he's a native Tennessean. Our family goes back many generations. Uh, and he was dying to get back to Tennessee, so we moved down to Nashville where he got a job with TVA, and later he got a job with the Atomic Energy Commission there in Oak Ridge. Uh, he was an accountant. And uh, I grew up there, graduated from high school there, uh, went to Bloomington, Indiana, where I did my undergraduate work, got my, my uh, bachelor's degree in history, uh, and then I did a master's degree over at Harvard in history, but decided, uh, unlike yourself, uh, that the academic world was one I really didn't want to stay in, so I did a variety of other things and ultimately ended up uh, going to law school out at Stanford and uh, got my law degree. Worked in Los Angeles for a bit as, a, as an attorney uh, and then got a heck of a great job working with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Activities in Washington. I was a special assistant to the chief counsel and uh, spent some time working on the reports on the CIA attempts to overthrow uh, Castro, Lumumba, etc., and uh, the FBI attempts to discredit Martin Luther King and the uh, civil rights movement. When that job wound up, I became an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, uh, handled prosecutions there in Washington, D.C. for some six or seven years, uh, and then I got an assignment as a special assistant U.S. attorney down to the Virgin Islands, and I worked in the courts there and then uh, set up my own law firm, did that for many, many years, uh, Hurricane Hugo. Uh, which I know hit Charleston terribly, uh, happened to pass through the Virgin Islands uh, just before it got to South Carolina. And uh, it was a Cat 5 at that point, and our house was destroyed and everything in it. And uh, so my wife and I, uh, who had just had our first child, moved back, uh, back to the States, uh, tried a couple of different places, and ended up in Charleston in 1996. And we've lived in the Charleston, Mount Pleasant area uh, ever since then. You've had a very active career as a, as a lawyer, but you've also somehow found the time to publish at least a dozen books, most with the Civil War, winning prizes right and left. Uh, you were kind of juggling two careers. Well, that's, that's true, but uh, I think there are two good careers to juggle, and they really overlap in a lot of ways. Uh, I was a trial lawyer basically for the last 40-odd years, and as you might imagine, that's one of those stressful, confrontational kinds of jobs to have. Doing history, which has always been a passion of mine, is a very different type of thing. It's very collegial. And particularly, uh, I found the historians working in the Civil War Reconstruction era, people like Gary Gallagher and Jim McPherson, et cetera, uh, are extremely collegial. Uh, it's a great group to, to be associated with and to work with. So I think uh, law and history sort of balance each other out. One of them gets me all excited and jumping up and down, and the other one is has a much more common influence. Well, most of your earlier books dealt specifically with Civil War battles and, and campaigns. Why Stephen Swales? Well, Swales uh, sort of uh, fell into my lap uh, through a series of fascinating events. Uh, you're right. I'd, uh, I developed an interest in the Civil War very, very early. My dad was born in 1901 uh, in a little town in southern Tennessee. And uh, as you might imagine, that was only, what, 36 years after the end of the Civil War, and uh, all the old men sitting around the grocery store were Confederate veterans. So he sort of grew up in that culture. When I was a kid, I was born in 1945. I know when the other kids uh, would go off to ball games with their, with their father, my dad would take me out to battlefields. <laughs> so that sort of got into my blood early on. When I was working as a prosecutor in Washington, I needed some kind of diversion, and I uh, started to go into central Virginia and got fascinated with the battles there between Grant and Lee 
And that led to my five books on the overland campaign on the wilderness, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, and those battles. I developed an interest, though, also by working through a lot of biographies, uh, working through a lot of the personal papers of soldiers. Uh, I got interested in the, the, the common man in the Civil War uh, and did a few biographies. One of them actually is called Carrying the Flag, about Charles Wilden, who was an elderly <laughs> Confederate soldier for the time, almost 50 years old, from Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and that was fascinating. Uh, but a few years ago, my wife, Catherine, who was a volunteer guardian ad litem for the courts, uh, had a one of the wards she was working with, uh, was in Kingstree, South Carolina, and uh, she had need for a lawyer there to, to help him with some matters. She contacted a local realtor uh, in Mount Pleasant, where we live, who she knew was from Kingstree, and asked him if he knew a good lawyer there. And he said, yeah, my brother, Billy Jenkinson. So she said, great, I'll get a hold of him. And she did. And Billy said, oh, I'd love to help you, but you got to first uh, introduce me to your husband, Gordon Ray. And so Billy and I got to know each other that way. Uh, Billy Jenkinson, uh, it turns out, was fascinated with Stephen Swales. Uh, Swales had spent some of his life in King Street, and we can talk about that in a bit. But Jenkinson had come into possession of Swales' personal papers. Uh, this is extraordinarily unusual. There were some 200,000 African-American soldiers that fought in the American Civil War, and uh, there are virtually no biographies of any of those individual soldiers. I'm only aware of one other one. Uh, most didn't leave papers and memoirs and those sorts of things behind. Swales did. Jenkinson came into possession of Swales' material in a very unusual way as well. Back in the uh, late 1970s, there were two young men from King Street who were driving by the, the former site of Swales' home. Some construction was going on there, and they saw a trunk uh, and a wicker basket sitting beside the road. Uh, they got curious about it and went back a little bit later to, to see what was in those things, and they were gone. The uh, trash people had picked up those items and brought them to the dump to be destroyed. Later in the day, one of those young men was going by the dump and saw the trunk sitting there, went over to it, looked inside, uh, and saw that it was filled with papers, old papers, papers to uh, people back in the 1850s, 60s, even 70s. Uh, and so he brought it to the local historical society, which paid him $75 for it. Well, Jenkinson was in that society uh, and uh, saw the papers, uh, realized their value, copied them and then sent the originals uh, to the University of South Carolina, uh, which I've contacted several times, and they simply can't find them right now. But uh, fortunately, Jenkinson had copies, and he gave me, uh, when he came by to see me, several boxes packed with uh, copies of the personal papers of Swales. So that's kind of how this all came together. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've just got to stop a minute. The South Carolina Library cannot find the Swales papers now? That's correct. I understand, having talked to some of the folks there, uh, that they have a lot of papers that they have not yet cataloged. Uh, they, and so they may be there, but just haven't been cataloged yet. Okay. I would hope that the publication of your book will spur them on to find those papers. So anyway, Billy gave you the papers, and because Swales was a member of the famous 54th Massachusetts, that brings you right into your military history hook. Uh, exactly, exactly. And uh, as I delved into his story, uh, obviously I had to go to a lot of other places to find papers. Here in South Carolina, the Department of Archives and History is fantastic. And they had all of the papers that related to his uh, time when he was working with the legislature here in South Carolina. The National Archives uh, has the papers that relate to all of the work that he was doing uh, with the Freedmen's Bureau. And, of course, we've got his compiled military service records, and then all of the military records that he himself saved. So uh, it was possible to really put together his whole story. Also, fortunately, uh, during the, the period that he was involved in South Carolina politics, he was almost a national figure. And there are hundreds of newspaper articles that were contemporaneous about his various doings. So uh, there was a lot of good primary, uh, pretty much untouched material that's out there. And uh, Having done several books involving research uh, in that time frame, I had a pretty good idea of where to look. A lot of other historians, people like Steve Wise, were extremely helpful as well. And so I think of my book sort of as a collaborative effort. Uh, I was the Scribner. 
But uh, Billy Jenkinson obviously was the was the spark, the inspiration, and also the uh, uh, the man who was able to really get me a large portion of the documentation that I needed. I think the story, the papers, as as a historian and someone who keeps telling folks, you never know what's there in in the attic, in the basement, yeah. and for God's sakes, before you sell your house, granddaddy's trunk might have things, and please contact the Carolinian or the Historical Society in Charleston uh, so that they'll be saved for future generations. Absolutely. Gordon, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Gordon Ray about his latest book, Stephen A. Swales, Black Freedom Fighter in the Civil War and Reconstruction. So let's, let's turn now to Stephen Swales. Let's start talking about his story. Right. Well, he was he was born in 1832 uh, in a little town called Columbia, Pennsylvania. It's right on the northern bank, basically, of the Susquehanna River. I've tried to put together exactly who his mother and father were, uh, and census records from those times help, although they're somewhat contradictory. Uh, his father apparently was an escaped slave, had escaped from Maryland. He gets variously described as black or mulatto. Uh, his mother apparently also was from Maryland, and she's variously described as white or mulatto. So it's hard to say, but apparently she was light-skinned and his father was dark-skinned. Uh, Swales, by the time he was about two and a half years old there in Columbia, uh, went through a, a terrible ordeal. Uh, there was a massive race riot. Uh, the town itself was a, a terminal on the Underground Railway and had developed a fairly large African-American population. And the local white population was getting upset about this. Uh, there was competition for jobs, all sorts of issues. And in 1834, uh, there was a big riot. Um, men marched through the black portion of town, uh, shooting off guns, smashing windows. And, of course, little baby Swales went through that. His family left not long afterwards, ended up in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, which was a lot quieter. And then migrated up to New York and spent most of his childhood. Okay. Wasn't Manham also a stop on the Underground Railroad? It was. It was. But it had a, a much smaller population there also. Uh, it was just a lot calmer place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, wasn't the subject of race riots or anything like that. It continued up to um, Elmira, New York. Uh, and that's pretty much where he, where he went to school, grew up, quite well educated. Uh, and some of the uh, censuses describe him uh, as being in school. And then he ended up in Cooperstown. Uh, Civil War breaks out. Uh, he's working at a hotel, the Keys Hotel, as a waiter. Uh, the hotel burns down. He gets a job uh, as a boatsman on one of the local canals. Uh, and then in 1863, in April, uh, he volunteers for the famed 54th Massachusetts Infantry. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, that was a African-American Regiment. It was uh, raised by Governor John Andrew uh, of Massachusetts, uh, who was a very strong abolitionist. Uh, it had the strong support of uh, people like Frederick Douglass and a lot of the abolitionists. And uh, one thing I was never able to find out and wished I could have figured it out was exactly why Swales decided to join the 54th Massachusetts. I don't know if it was out of his need for a job <laughs> or uh, if it was out of a real dedication to that cause. But whatever his, his uh, motivations were, uh, he was quickly recognized by the colonel of the regiment, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, uh, as a real asset, and he was made a sergeant, uh, apparently within a few weeks of having joined the, uh, the regiment. And, and I think we need to point out, it is the 54th Massachusetts, and so promotions and so forth are going to start with the state level before they get up to the War Department. Correct. Correct. Which, yeah. by the way, was not real happy about an African-American regiment. No, and there, there's quite a story behind all of that as well, right? This is one of the first African-American regiments to be raised in the North. There had been some raised in the South, and as you know, the, the first and second South Carolina were yeah. raised down. Yes, in, in, in the Sea Islands. In the Sea Island area, exactly. The, and, of course, the 54th Massachusetts, the uh, commissioned officers were all white uh, from the colonel on down. Swales uh, rises very quickly, though, for two reasons. One reason is because he's very well educated uh, and he deals uh, well uh, with the white officers. Uh, and also he uh, looks white. And there's comments made about this by some of the people within the regiment. Uh, he could basically pass for white. 
Uh, and so this was, is going to serve him well. It's going to be a fascinating uh, point in his life. The regiment is in uh, May of 1863, is assigned to go to the Charleston, South Carolina area. And so the men of the 54th uh, crowd onto the steamers and head south. They go into an area of war, which is very, very interesting. South Carolina obviously was a a major focus of the Union war effort. Charleston uh, is one of the main uh, ports. There had been attempts up to this point to try to break through to take Charleston from the sea. Those didn't work out so well. So there was a desire now to do another major, major push against Charleston. The man who's in charge of the war effort for the Union down there, uh, David Hunter, uh, is a strong abolitionist. And he's pushing to raise African-American regiments. And he actually puts at least two of them together, the first and second South Carolina colored, that are drawn mainly from the freed slave population there in South Carolina, Georgia. Hunter gets into some real uh, shouting matches, basically, with the Confederate government. (laughs) Uh, The the Confederate government uh, is very upset with him. Uh, and basically uh, issues edicts that say that any white officers uh, commanding black troops will be uh, subject to execution if captured, uh, and black soldiers will be subject to execution or return to slavery if that's the appropriate uh, result. Uh, So the men of the 54th who are coming into this area of combat are really coming there at massive, massive personal risk. Um, both not only the the black soldiers but the white officers that command them. Well, later on, President Lincoln would issue a a reply to the Confederate treatment. Exactly. And his reply would be basically a a (laughs) tit-for-tat. He says for every every, uh, black soldier that is uh, consigned back to slavery, a captured Confederate will be put to hard labor. (laughs) And uh, for every officer that's, that's killed, a uh, Confederate officer will be killed. But it took Lincoln a while to come around to that. Yes, it did. Uh, the, uh, so that just gives you an idea, though, of the, of the racial tension that's going on in this, this theater at that time. I think, Gord, we need to point out the Sea Islands and the Buford area are rather unique in this whole process. I mean, this is rehearsal for Reconstruction takes place in Buford, that whole area which has been under Union control since November 1861. So the black troops, uh, African-Americans taking leadership positions was not uncommon in that context. Exactly. The, uh, the Sea Islands, uh, where uh, the two regiments I mentioned, the 1st and 2nd South Carolina Union regiments, were raised from areas that had been liberated, and they were virtually all former slaves. And yes, officers within those regiments uh, were many times black officers. But those regiments weren't formally recognized, basically, in the federal system until we get into, again, 1863. And uh, there's a whole fascinating story behind them, <laughs> which, uh, which is sort of a sidelight on my book, but not a, not a, not a main issue. Oh, that's another manuscript? Yes, I'm, I'm planning one on those, too. Uh, okay, good, because there's, you know, with all due respect to the 54th, I think the 1st and 2nd have been neglected. Yes. Uh, 54th got glory, I mean— literally and figuratively with the, mm-hmm. with the movie. Exactly. With the 54th down there, another thing that's fascinating is the interaction between these the soldiers of the 54th Massachusetts who were African-American, but most of whom were born in freedom and who grew up in the North. Their interaction with the soldiers uh, in the 1st and 2nd South Carolina Union regiments that were virtually all former slaves and had only been freed recently within the last few months or perhaps year and did not have the education or acculturation that the soldiers of the 54th Massachusetts had. And so it would be fascinating if we could learn more about how those people interacted and viewed each other. I know the movie Glory uh, has a few points there that, uh, that, that sort of emphasize that difference, but uh, it's a fascinating one. All right, Gordon, we've got the 54th down to Beaufort now, so they're going to be part of an assault on Charleston. Right. The uh, 54th is uh, sent on its first combat mission fairly quickly. Uh, it's combined with the 1st or 2nd South Carolina and sent to the little town of Darien, Georgia. Uh, Darien's up a small river, and it was a uh, sort of a, a, a trading post. 
And uh, the unit goes up there. Uh, they attack Darien, and uh, a lot of the town is destroyed. And the colonel of the 54th Massachusetts, Colonel Shaw, gets very upset about this because the man in charge of the expedition, uh, Colonel James Montgomery, uh, who happens to be a fervent abolitionist, uh, basically wants to punish uh, slaveholders uh, and the destruction of Darien, as he views it, uh, is almost a uh, religiously based duty to help uh, undermine the slaveholders. Shaw, commanding the 54th Massachusetts, is very upset at being involved in this sort of thing. He considers it uh, to be outside the the range of what legitimate warfare should be, basically attack on civilian populations. The impact on the 54th uh, is pretty tremendous because suddenly the newspapers north and south uh, are talking about this atrocity at Darien and tying the 54th Massachusetts to it. And so Colonel Shaw realizes that it's critical that the 54th Massachusetts change its image and that it be involved in something uh, much more significant and much more traditionally combat-oriented. That happens very quickly. The decisions made to go ahead and launch a new attack uh, to break through Charleston Harbor. Uh, the 54th Massachusetts is sent on a side mission, basically a diversionary mission, up onto James Island. Uh, they go onto a little uh, a small subsidiary island called Sol Legree. There's an, a, a, an engagement that takes place there. Confederate forces break through the Union line. The 54th Massachusetts, though, manages to hold back the Confederate assault in time for other Union forces to escape, uh, and suddenly the 54th Massachusetts finds itself praised. Uh, Swales plays an important part in all of this. Obviously, as a sergeant, uh, he's commanding some of the troops, and uh, it's a good day uh, for the 54th. The 54th is then sent very quickly, basically the next day, over to um, take part in a major assault against Battery Wagner, or Fort Wagner, as it was called by the Union officers. Uh, Fort Wagner uh, is a, one of the forts guarding the mouth of Charleston Harbor. It's there on Morris Island. There is an interesting event that takes place. Uh, a decision is made to put the 54th Massachusetts in front of the assault against Battery Wagner. Uh, according to a newspaperman, the officer that made that decision, the uh, commanding general, Truman Seymour, was overheard uh, saying that he wanted to put the 54th in front uh, because it was going to be necessary to get rid of them at some point anyway, and this would be a good a time as any to do it. Uh, basically, Ooh. they're all going to get killed. Pretty brutal. Truman Seymour later in his report denied having said that, that sort of thing and said instead that he put the 54th in front uh, because it had distinguished itself uh, there at uh, James Island and Saul Degree, so that's why he put it in front. We'll never really know the true answer to that one either, but 54th Massachusetts leads the attack. Let's talk about that, the terrain and the, sure. and the fortification itself for a minute. Okay. The terrain uh, is basically a beach. <laughs> There's uh, ocean off to the right, and then a short distance, 100, 150 yards to the left, is marshland. So the route that the attack is going to have to take place on basically narrows and focuses and funnels and until it comes to the fort that's built across the neck of uh, Morris Island. Uh, Battery Wagner itself is quite a fortification. I mean, it's got high parapets. Uh, it's got a uh, secondary set of parapets. It's got a moat uh, that at least at high tide fills with water. And so it's perfectly set up to block an attacking force that has to funnel uh, down along the beach. It's got artillery on it, uh, and of course it's got a, a large uh, contingent of soldiers occupying it as well. Behind it is another fort, Battery Gregg or Fort Gregg, and uh, it'll be necessary obviously to overrun both of those forts in order to take that Morris Island that's guarding the southern approaches into the uh, Charleston Harbor. Uh, the 54th Massachusetts and the rest of the attack force is a, a stationed, oh, about 150 uh, I'm sorry, about 1,500 yards from the fort. Uh, and at the uh, signal to attack, uh, has to cross uh, basically close to a mile of beach under fire the whole time. The order to attack goes off at near dusk, uh, and the 54th Massachusetts pushes forward, swales, of course, with them. 
And uh, as they push forward, they're under heavy fire. And as they get close to the, to the fort, they're under massive fire. The uh, men are falling all over the place. The 54th pushes forward. Swales is right there in the front with them. They hit the parapets, go through the, the swales and up onto the top of the fort. Colonel Shaw is killed fairly quickly. And Swales finds himself with two of the white captains up on the walls of Battery Wagner. Uh, they're under massive fire. Uh, one of the captains uh, is, is shot and badly wounded. Swales uh, helps basically protect him, ends up picking up a, a rifle uh, and firing back at Confederates. The other captain says, don't shoot too much because it's going to attract more attention. <laughs> that man also gets shot. And so uh, Swales finally is forced to fall back and, and, and take cover. It's, it's a horrendous scene. He leaves a full account of this, by the way, uh, in his papers. He survives this. Ultimately, the 54th is ordered to fall back by the commanders, and it retreats along with the rest of the Union forces, and the, the attack against Battery Wagner has failed. But that does not end their military operations at all. Not even close. Nope. They stay there for the next uh, uh, virtually two months and are, are one of the forces uh, that helps to move the Union uh, entrenchments closer and closer to Battery Wagner. Uh, 54th Massachusetts soldiers basically uh, act as ditch diggers uh, and uh, carters of supplies. And this will become a real burr <laughs> under their skin as, as things progress. Uh, in early September, Battery Wagner surrenders, as, as does Fort Gregg, uh, and at least that portion of the Charleston defenses uh, falls into Union hands. Even though the attack against Battery Wagner failed, the 54th Massachusetts comes out with flying colors. Uh, they've proven themselves to be as brave as any white man, if not braver, and, and they've come out covered with glory, hence the uh, movie's name, even though they, they did not win the battle. And then they are used in a campaign that most people never heard about in Florida. Right. They go down, they're sent down to Florida uh, in early uh, 1864 in, in February. Their goal is to uh, enter Jacksonville and then move across the state, uh, basically severing rail lines. And uh, they get into Jacksonville. The main Union force moves into the interior of the, of the state. Uh, where it encounters Confederates at the Battle of Ulysti, and uh, they're repulsed. During the retreat, uh, it's decided that some force is needed to basically defend the retreating Union forces, uh, and the 54th Massachusetts is selected for that purpose, uh, and they do a heck of a job. Uh, they manage to hold the Confederates back so that the rest of the Union expeditionary force can escape. Swales himself uh, is shot, uh, shot in the head, uh, while rallying his troops, but doesn't die, obviously, uh, and is, is brought to the hospitals. Again, it's a battle that the 54th does not win, but it again is covered with glory because it manages basically to save the entire expeditionary force by covering, covering the rear. In that campaign, you have Confederate soldiers killing wounded African-American soldiers. Yes, exactly what had been feared happens in that campaign. There are several uh, accounts of it. I, I talk about them in my book uh, where Union troops, black troops who had been wounded in a line on the field are shot by, by the Confederates as well, they take over that field. You also have chronicled very well what the white soldiers in the Confederacy in Florida were, were thinking and what they said about the African-American troops. But there's also a comment by a black soldier about what he thought about white Floridians. And I, <laughs> I think it's worth talking about. White Floridians, he explained, do not seem to understand anything but that they are the most godforsaken looking animals on earth. In his opinion, they look mean, and mean is highlighted. They look mean, they live meanly, act meanly, and they don't mean to be anything but mean. And it's very safe to assert that they are very mean. To think that these fellows voted Florida out of the Union without the aid of the primitive inhabitants, alligators, is simply preposterous. Yes. Um, so, back at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, there was no love lost. No love lost. Uh, Swales is wounded, and he's going to get promoted. He is, and that's a fascinating story. Up to this point in the war— uh, there had been no African-Americans who'd been commissioned as officers in the U.S. military, with the exception 
uh, of some uh, medical men uh, and I think some preachers, uh, but basically none in a combat context. Swales uh, is the one who finally breaks that. It's a fascinating story. I go into it in some length, and and, uh, most of the records that document all of that come from either Swales' files or from the compiled military service records in the uh, Library of Congress. And Governor Uh, Andrew plays a key role in it. Andrew plays a a key role. Uh, He and uh, the new colonel of the 54th Massachusetts uh, basically commend Swales for his bravery and uh, recommend him for advancement, and Governor Andrew advances him to uh, the level of second lieutenant. Of course, for that to become official, it has to go through the federal system. Uh, Swales has to be commissioned uh, by on the federal side. He has to be dis- he has to be discharged as an enlisted man, exactly. and then commissioned. Exactly. War Department is loath to do that, even though it's urged to do so by Governor Andrew and by Swales' new colonel. And the reason given is very straightforward. Basically, he has, according to the War Department, African blood. Uh, and there's a risk that if he is commissioned in the combat context, uh, he would end up commanding white troops, and that's simply unheard of. And so it's his denial of a commission is based purely upon his race. There's quite a campaign that's then waged by Governor Andrew, uh, by Swales' supporters. Swales himself is given leave to go up to Washington so he can, he can help uh, lobby on his own behalf. And bottom line, uh, after some time, Governor Andrew is able to uh, persuade the War Department that even though Swales is, uh, has African blood, you couldn't tell it looking at him, basically. Uh, he's, uh, he looks like a white man. And based on that, the War Department goes ahead and commissions him, discharges him, and then commissions him as a, an officer. Gordon, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Gordon Ray about his latest book, Stephen A. Swales, Black Freedom Fighter in the Civil War and Reconstruction. All right, I think we need to move on down to the, the post-war period of uh, the 54th is deactivated, and what does Swales do then? Well, Swales decides that he's going to uh, join the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau uh, is quite active in South Carolina. Uh, it actually had its origins in South Carolina and Georgia, uh, as I think you alluded to earlier, uh, during the latter years of the war. Its purpose is to, is to basically ease the transition from slavery into freedom, to solve all sorts of problems dealing with ownership of land, of jobs, uh, of education, etc. And Swales joins the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, he's first assigned to the Sea Islands, but then shortly ends up in King Street, South Carolina, in what would become Williamsburg County. And there he makes quite a name for himself. Uh, Fortunately, most of those records have been preserved, both in the uh, Library of Congress as well as uh, in Swales' personal papers. He takes a very active role in King Street and Williamsburg County, trying to work out all of the difficulties between the the freed population and the white population. A lot of those are absolutely fascinating. Uh, Basically, the slaves now found themselves no longer enslaved, but they needed to make a living. They needed a place to live, and they had to usually get re-employed by their, or employed for the first time, by their former masters. And Swales would mediate that uh, in person. It's, uh, it's basically labor contracts. It's labor contracts. It is education contracts. It is all sorts of things that they had to do. Uh, an astounding amount of work. All of it documented. Uh, he would work out basically the contracts, uh, work out the, the verbiage for the contracts. If they couldn't be worked out, he'd make the appropriate threats <laughs> and uh, would get the job done. This is one thing that impresses me greatly about him, and I think that plays a lot in his uh, big role in his life. He's able to work both with the African-American freed slave world and the white man world. Uh, And I think uh, that's something that not a lot of of people from that time frame could do. Uh, It was a result, I think, obviously, of his having lived in the North, had jobs in the North, had to work with, you know, as as I mentioned, as a boatsman, as a, a waiter, et cetera. And uh, he ended up commanding respect from both both sides. And and Williamsburg County is overwhelmingly African American. Yes, yes, overwhelming. I think the I think the numbers were somewhere around sixty to seventy percent. 
yeah. African-American uh, at that time. He then uh, starts a march that's basically a, a, a spectacular advancement. On the local scene, he ends up actually uh, ultimately getting elected as mayor of King Street. Uh, he studies law. Uh, he became a lawyer uh, and actually set up a law office. Uh, his partner was a white man who had been a Confederate soldier and who had actually fought in the, one of the battles against him, the one there on James Island. And they set up their own law firm together. On the more national scene, he gets elected to be the representative for the Constitutional Convention in South Carolina there in 1867. Convention take, takes place in early 1868. He is a major force, according to several, in helping to put together and negotiate a uh, constitution uh, that is an extremely progressive one for the time, uh, basically that gives black people the same rights as white people. He then gets elected as the state senator from Williamsburg County. And then once he's in the Senate, is selected as Senator Pro Tempore, or Pro Tem, as it's generally called, which is one of the highest, obviously, positions there in the state Senate. Yes, it's a powerful slot, even even today. Right. And you have a footnote that a portrait was commissioned of him to hang in the Senate, but it's not hanging there yet. Well, it just got in there, (laughs) believe it or not. Right. Uh, A portrait was uh, commissioned of him. Billy Jenkinson was behind that one, too. Uh, I don't have the dates right in front of me, probably in the uh, 1970s. Uh, It was commissioned and actually prepared, but wasn't hung. But uh, just as my book was coming out, I think in uh, end of October, the Senate hung the picture. So he now has a picture hung up in the uh, in the state Senate. All right. So he's a powerful figure in Reconstruction South Carolina. So let's let's go into that in a little more detail. Okay. Yeah. He uh, he plays a major part. Uh, again, he's not a big sp- speech maker, um, but according to several of his contemporaries, he was a excellent behind the scenes man. Uh, again, using his power of persuasion, his ability to negotiate. Uh, to get things done. And he is behind a lot of the reforms that take place during Reconstruction in South Carolina, basically from uh, 1868 on up through the mid-1870s. And he serves as a delegate at the National Republican Convention? Right. He's a delegate at at, uh, the National Republican Convention, the one there in 1868, of course, that nominates Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, And he then attends some of the other uh, conventions. He becomes a national figure. Statewide, uh, he's responsible in large part for a lot of the educational reforms, the setting up of public schools, a sharp increase in uh, the admission of of African Americans to schools uh, and their education. He's on the board of, I guess, his trustees. He's a trustee of the the University of South Carolina. Exactly, the University of South Carolina. And uh, again, I, I go into that in some detail, but there's a lot of dissension because uh, the admission of black students is uh, is not accepted by the, <laughs> the, university by the of white South, population. The yeah. University of South Carolina was the only white Southern university to be desegregated at all. Right. And it was not just at the student level. It was also faculty and trustees. Correct. Correct. Uh, and and Swales was one of those trustees. Yes. Uh, and was, was instrumental in that. He also was very instrumental in land reform. Uh, in South Carolina in making property available to be purchased over time by the uh, recently liberated slaves. And so he's he's not just uh, a lot of talk and bluster. He's a man who's actually getting things done. Well, he marries a South Carolina woman. Susan Aspinall, who was a free black in South Carolina. Her, her father was a uh, tailor in Charleston, actually. And uh, he marries her, and they raise their family there in King Street. Of course, Reconstruction in South Carolina ends in the spring of 1877 with the withdrawal of federal troops. Right. And Swales was somehow involved in the talks that were going on, was he not? He was, he was opposed to what President Hayes was going to do. Right. Yeah, the picture is this. The, uh, in 1876, obviously, Wade Hampton— uh, is elected governor of South Carolina. Uh, Wade Hampton is a former Confederate cavalry chief for the Army of Northern Virginia, at least in its, its later years. Very large plantation owner here in South Carolina. According to some sources, the richest <laughs> of the bunch. I don't know how 
if, if that's been established or not, but did quite well. Uh, and also had become the sort of spokesman for the group known as the Redeemers, uh, basically the uh, white population that wanted return, maybe not to slavery, but to something that was kind of like slavery, uh, basically the white supremacist ideology. With his election, uh, it was a contested election, as you know, and uh, at one point before it was finalized, there were even uh, basically two governors from South Carolina. Uh, two, two governors, two houses of right. representatives, and the main thing was who got the presidential votes in South Carolina. Exactly, exactly. And this was during the Tilden Hayes controversy mm-hmm. for the presidency of the United States. Uh, where a deal was finally worked out. Uh, Hayes was selected as the president, but in that context, he also made it clear that he was going to basically terminate Reconstruction in the South and withdraw federal troops, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, And with withdrawal of federal troops, Hampton's um, governorship was assured, and the Reconstruction basically came, came to an end. All right, the Hampton administration takes over, Swales resigns from the state senate. Right. He's not forced out, but he resigns. And what does he do now? Well, he stays for a bit in South Carolina, uh, and he remains active in South Carolina politics. And he takes an, an active part in the uh, election in 1878, basically by supporting other candidates. And that really gets him in trouble. Uh, there's an event, again, which I lay out in some detail in my book, and that is based on his papers and letters he later had with uh, uh, Governor Hampton, he, uh, supporting one of the local candidates, goes to a big rally near King's Tree, and some of the red shirts show up at that meeting. Uh, he ends up aborting the meeting, starts back toward King's Tree, uh, and a group of perhaps as many as 100 of these red shirts, well-armed, uh, basically cut him off, uh, accompany him back to King's Tree. It's pretty clear that he's basically under arrest. He makes a break for it when they get to town and seeks some kind of cover in the courthouse. One of his associates or friends is shot a couple of times, and uh, it's clear that his life is in danger. Uh, the local sheriff is on his side, though. local sheriff is on his side, exactly. The sheriff manages to save Swales. Uh, the next day or so, Swales is at his house, and a group of these red shirts show up. Uh, and he's presented with an ultimatum. Bottom line at the ultimatum is uh, get out of town within 10 days or you're dead. This one he takes seriously. He goes down to Charleston and then comes back to King Street. His friends urge him to leave, and he does. Ends up going up to Washington, D.C. But his wife and children stay here. They stay here. They stay in King Street you know, at the home that he had, that he had built there. He works in Washington for the next several years in the Postal Department, Treasury Department, and uh, visits King's Tree, though, fairly regularly to see his family and also to take part in local politics, uh, but uh, supporting various candidates. He actually tries to run against uh, Smalls uh, unsuccessfully. Robert Smalls, black hero during the Civil War. Exactly, Uh, who who was a congressman for a a few terms uh, in Washington, D.C., there's a big contested election of Smalls, which Smalls hires Swales to represent him. And so Swales is still quite active in, in local politics. Doesn't stay in South Carolina very much, though. And every time he comes down, it was fascinating. Uh, I could find the local papers that would say, Swales is back. Uh, that troublemaker is, you know, causing trouble again. Uh, a lot of those, that sort of, of, of verbiage. Frankly, I was surprised he was not killed. Yeah. I was, too. I, I had expected to find that he might be killed during one of those visits, but he was not. Yeah. So he, ba- he basically is in exile from South Carolina yes. for the rest of his life. Yes. And he continues on like that uh, from when he leaves, which would have been in 1878, uh, until he dies in uh, uh, 1900. But his wife and family stay in King's Tree, and she lives until the 1930s, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah, she lives up until the into the 20s or 30s, correct. And uh, family members, uh, obviously, uh, many remain in King's Tree and then ultimately move. I don't believe there's any left there now. I have been in communication with some of the family uh, descendants, uh, one in Florida and other places. Are they still swales or? Yeah, it, it varied. Yeah, some, some were off the... the female side of the family, et cetera. Did they know the story of their ancestor? Not a whole lot, but some. 
Uh, and actually, at uh, one of the uh, big events that was put together uh, for Swales by Billy Jenkinson, uh, Swales, just, just to get this story out, Swales was, was actually buried in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, at the uh, Black Cemetery, which is right next to Magnolia Cemetery. Mm-hmm. But he was, his wife apparently decided it was best to put him there rather than bury him in King Street uh, because she was afraid if he was in King Street, his political opponents might desecrate his grave. I think it was in the 80s, could have been in the 90s. Billy Jenkinson arranged a big ceremony uh, there at the burial site uh, and uh, got a, uh, a new marker uh, put up at the burial site. And also some of the uh, descendants of Swales attended uh, that celebration. And, and he was buried basically in his wife's family plot Yes, there in, in Charleston. So that was the end of Swales. Uh, but interestingly enough, he sort of disappears <laughs> after that Well, from the historical record. But you, you've, you've seen these – his collected papers, you mentioned there were thousands of documents that you had at your disposal. Yes. As a historian, I'm just jealous. That they're all right there. They're all, there's lots of them there. And then once you hit the other archives that I mentioned to you, you can really put together the whole picture. Right. It's a story of South Carolina and Reconstruction that has not been told before. No, and it really needed to be told, and I'm I'm honored to have had the opportunity to put it together and do it. Well, it's not that Swales was unknown to some local historians. No, and you're correct. He, he's mentioned by a few of the local historians, and, and I, I cite what they had to say about him. Right. Yes. In McGill's narrative of reminiscences of Williamsburg County, he observed, S.A. Swales, a colored soldier in a Pennsylvania Union regiment, was a state senator and possessed unbounded influence over the Negroes, and to him it is principally due to the exemption as above, and there was no serious complaints about him. But Bodie's history of Williamsburg County, which mm-hmm. was written in the 20s, is the one— um, most people would go to if you're looking for a history of Williamsburg County. There came out of Potter's Raiders to Williamsburg a Pennsylvania Negro named Stephen A. Swales, he wrote. It was not then known that he had been one of this band, but often suspected. Had it been known, the first one of at least 100 men in Williamsburg County who saw him would have shot him like a snake. Bodie conceded that Swales was an educated Negro and had much natural ability, exercising an uncanny influence over the Negroes and serving as the county's senator until he was driven away by outraged whites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that raises an interesting point, too. Um, we hadn't mentioned it, but uh, Swales was involved in, in an expedition known as Potter's Raid there during the very last year of the war, April of 1865, uh, that uh, took the 54th Massachusetts and some other units up through the area by Kingstree. They didn't actually go into the town, but they were very near it, uh, basically tearing up rail lines and disrupting Confederate yeah. supplies in support of Sherman. And the uh, it, that, that made him – and he was wounded, as yeah. a matter of fact, during that expedition. He was shot well, in the arm. There was but, a, a little railroad town that doesn't exist anymore, Manchester, right? Which uh, where they captured tremendous amount of uh, railroad stock. And what they didn't take, they burned. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, actually, Swales uh, was instrumental in capturing one of the uh, trains. He uh, jumped into it, drove away the engineer and everybody else that was in the train and started driving it down the tracks. And a uh, Union soldier, sharpshooter, uh, didn't realize who it was, thought it was he was a Confederate and shot him <laughs> in the arm. Uh, another one of his battle wounds uh, and a very brave event that he was involved in. But his involvement in Potter's Raid actually helped him in many ways because he was now a war hero. And, uh, of course, the African-American population was very proud of that. I'm sure that the white population of Kingstree realized that he had been in on Potter's Raid because uh, that was a big part of his biography. But I have never seen anything in the contemporaneous materials that indicates that they were upset by that. Well, what's interesting is those two early descriptions of him by white historians called him a Pennsylvanian, mm-hmm. even though he had come to South Carolina through the 54th. Right, through the Massachusetts. Regiment. So they had known a lot about his story uh, of who he was uh, was not a secret. No, 
But again, you don't find him um, honored or uh, praised or even, you know, except rarely discussed in, you know, one sentence in a book. No, no. Well, uh, people like Billy Jenkinson are helping to rewrite the history of Williamsburg County. Yep, they are. Yeah. Um, Point I make at the end of the book is, is that a lot of the things he had championed ended with Jim Crow and even in the military. It took a long time, <laughs> up and up and well into our century, probably to the Korean War, uh, uh, before African Americans had full access to military units. But um, Swales is one of those um, huge figures. You know, they say that uh, the people who do things now stand on the shoulders of giants. And as I mentioned in the book, I think he was one of those giants. Well, it's it's a fascinating story, and Gordon. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Okay. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? No, I think we I think we've pretty well covered it. Um, all I could really say is that I'm uh, I've enjoyed working on this biography uh, probably more than I've enjoyed working on any other book, and I feel that today it's extremely important uh, because it touches on a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in our contemporaneous society. All right. Well, Gordon Ray the author of Stephen A. Swale's Black Freedom Fighter in the Civil War and Reconstruction. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you very much for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did, and I also learned a lot. Gordon Ray is a terrific researcher. His Civil War books I was familiar with. They won a lot of awards. But Swale's was a truly important figure in South Carolina during the war and especially during Reconstruction. And his story had been lost and would have been lost except for the accidental discovery of his papers on the streets of King Street, South Carolina. The story of Stephen Swales and Reconstruction is very much a South Carolina story and it's all a part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.